Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Tuesday, September 26th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. It's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. If you click the link, download it, print it off, you can copy it as often as you'd like and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we appreciate it whenever anybody does that, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone if you're listening live or... If you're listening through the archives, send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. 
Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And um, we get a comment or a question or an answer or a testimonial from you through an email. We will address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your input. Today's a Tuesday. That means there will be a support group happening this evening from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. If you're so inclined, you or anybody you know can join us absolutely free. The information about how to log in through Zoom is available at mindshiftersacademy.org. If you go there, please remember there's a separate login information page for Tuesday and Thursday groups. And we'd be happy to have you join us or have you pass that information along to somebody that you think might benefit from joining us. I've had the occasion recently to listen back. Somebody requested the recordings from a couple of groups. And in listening back, I'm just thrilled at how useful and powerful the information exchange is that happens in those groups and it's a blessing to be able to participate. There's part of me that wishes I could offer that, the, the replays of those groups to uh, anybody. And um, of course there are issues with you know, rights and privacy and things, although there really isn't a whole lot of um, what you might call need for secrecy or privacy because basically we're just discussing the same kinds of things that we discuss on the Internet show on a regular basis. So, um, there you have it. We have plenty of time for comments or questions, answers, testimonials, feedback. I've been... um, I've been amazed recently about some of the synchronicities. I I check into the uh, I get the uh, emails, Educare on Learning Insights, and um, one of the things we've been talking about in the support groups and in those two that I mentioned that somebody asked for, is the idea of going with the flow, accepting whatever happens in life as though it's an adventure, it's a blessing, it's the perfect thing to be happening at the time, even though it may cause what I call a disruption or a discomfort on my part, and to, to look at it through the eyes of um, how might I use this to great advantage or how might this turn into a blessing for me. And so the Educari Unlearning Insight for um, yesterday was titled Pure Receptivity. And the, the writing offers the following. What if we approach each moment by greeting what arrives as if it is precisely what is supposed to arrive right then and right there? Would the universe send anything else? I wonder what it would be like to live a life of pure receptivity. 
instead of suppression, instead of hiding, instead of resentment and argument and complaining and spiritual bypassing, what would it be like to live a life of pure receptivity? This feels like an experiment worth investing in. The alternative is clearly miserable. I've been there and I've done that. So there's an invitation to engage the experiment of living in pure receptivity, approaching each moment by greeting whatever it is that arrives as if it is precisely what is supposed to arrive in that moment at that time. And then um, Diedrich Wolzak does a, a frequent, if not an everyday, quote. And the one, uh, the most recent one, is um, from this morning at 6.30 a.m. It's titled, Mastery of Pain. And the uh, quote he offers is from uh, Anais Nin. Um, the secret of joy is the mastery of pain. And then Diedrich writes, Mastery of pain, what an interesting grouping of words. Is it mastery I'm after? Or could it be that I have to learn to practice the faith-based position that everything is always for me? If that were true, and it would be true if I decided so, then curiosity and love would be my experience. Pain then becomes a catalyst for healing. Pain is the benevolent messenger that I have a little work to do. If I do not do the forgiveness work that pain calls for, it will simply keep coming. And yes, it will grow in intensity until I do. The catch is that the experience of pain can become addictive and then healing increasingly loses its attraction. Just as kicking a drug is not necessarily an attractive proposition to the addict. So my choice, my invitation is that we choose again. And we learn the faith-based position that everything that happens is happening for me, not to me. I hope you can see the synchronicity in those two offerings. So, again, call in number 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. I um, I can recommend um, for anybody you know who's doing a lot to give to others in life and not feeling uh, on top of it all the time. 
there was a podcast, a We Can Do Hard Things podcast. It might be the most recent. It might be the second to the most recent. But it's where they have another conversation with Oprah. Glennon and Abby and Glennon's sister have a conversation with Oprah Winfrey. And Glennon Doyle, if you don't know this, is a very talented writer. She's she's the author of a number of books that she wrote from a Christian perspective and on marriage and this and that before she began to wake up and realize that she was living from a should's position. She was living somebody else's idea of what her life should be and that she was using her creativity and her intelligence to numb out from what she thought was a history of bulimia, but turns out later in life she found out was a history of you know anorexia. And um, so the, the, the book that was um, the breakthrough in my introduction to her is titled Untamed. And it's where she woke up and realized that she can't keep living her life and or writing from a position of what other people think she should do. She had to be true to herself and her creativity and her sexuality and her love interests, etc. And so she broke the mold and wrote the book Untamed and um, has been going strong ever since with a variety of different endeavors and creative expression and So, um, back in 2018, Oprah Winfrey's mother died. And when Glennon got word of it, she had been writing an essay about the word mother. And so she wrote, she interrupted her writing to write an email to Oprah, which changed Oprah's life. And really, uh, Oprah broke into tears reading it, you know, all these years later. And here's, with, with only slight variations, This is um, what Glennon wrote to Oprah. This was written in 11-26-2018, and the subject is on mothering love. Glennon writes, Hello, my friend, my sister, my example. I'm sitting on a balcony on Cayman Island, and right at this moment writing an essay about the word mother. But the word mother and what it really means and how it's less to me a fixed identity that we can be or not be and it's more an energy that we can offer or not offer. The essay is about how some of us 
who can check the box of mother never really learn how to offer mothering love. And how others of us who don't get to check the box, we harness that mothering love and we offer it widely and wildly. The essay is about how much better off the world would be if we gathered up mothering love and used it like a floodlight instead of a pointed laser aimed only at the few that we've been assigned. As I'm writing this, on the balcony, my sister sent me a text that says, Glennon, Oprah's mother died. She was 83. I wanted you to know. I just got that text a minute ago. Oprah, I would never presume to guess what your relationship was like, how complex it was and is to be your mother's daughter. I would never presume to guess what your feelings are this week, what your feelings have been or will be. I just want to say that you are my example. You are my example of how to gather up mothering love and use it as a floodlight to illuminate and warm the world. You are my and the world's best example of grace, which means that we can somehow give what we've never even received. I don't know much, but from everything you've bravely said and kindly don't say, I've gathered that you didn't get the mothering love that you deserved and needed as a little girl and a grown girl. To me, that is what makes you a miracle. It is a miracle that somehow you took the broken pieces that she put in your hands, you took all of them, and you spun them into gold. And you opened your hands wide, and you offered that gold back to the world, which is not just a gift to the world. It's a gift directly back to your mother because you worked with what she gave you. You ensured that her legacy through you is gold. With your help, your mother's legacy is gold. What a gift. If there is a heaven, she can see that now. She can see that her miraculous daughter somehow somehow turned her offerings to gold. God knows that she's amazed and grateful. Well done, good, faithful, badass servant. I'm in your corner forever. So that's how they ended podcast and that is uh, to my eye and ear a wonderful way for each of us to look at how we turn whatever seems unfair and unjust and untoward in our lives for the better we make it a learning opportunity we find a way to bless others with our the hard-earned wisdom. We 
reach out to touch people in a loving way and it's my opinion that Glennon captured that beautifully so I wanted to share that And uh, mission accomplished. I just shared it. So, comments, questions are welcome. Five six three nine 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 three five eight one. If none of them are forthcoming, I will return to the book "Choose, Choose Again" by Diedrich Wolzak. And where we left off was with the idea that Franz Kafka said, "Paths are made by walking." And the paths we are making by our inner processing of our feelings and beliefs, these are new neural pathways. Diedrich writes, we're actually changing our minds at the deepest levels. Compare this to making a path through a rainforest, a very dense and tangled environment. It takes hard work. But after a lot of sweating and slashing and cursing, eventually we have our path. Now, what do you think happens if you stop there? What would that path look like in a month? There'd be no path anymore. The rainforest would swallow it up, just like the ego can swallow up all effect of a few well-meaning six-step processes or EFT tapping sessions or Michael Rice worksheets. We have to work to keep the pathway open. We have to keep processing until that tentative little path has become a six-lane highway. And even then, we have to maintain it. Like a rainforest, the ego simply waits for you and I to do the slacking off. So the question we offer, the invitation in this work is to explore, are you worth it? Are you worth the sustained, committed, disciplined approach it takes to change your mind for the better long-term? Here's hoping you do. Chapter 2 is titled, Who Do You Think You Are? He offers a quote from Eric Mikhail Leventhal. The closer you come to knowing that you alone create the world of your experience, the more vital it becomes for you to discover just who is doing the creating. In other words, who do you think you are? Who is doing the creating? You are, I am, but not the one we are in truth. Who is creating my experience is the creature I made up, but that creature has become a rogue robot. The quote I, close quotes, that you think you are, may have thoughts like these. Quote, in the eyes of the world, I'm a very successful lawyer, but at home, I'm angry all the time, close quotes. Or, quote, I'm a teacher who loves to read in my spare time. I have the perfect job. I'm just so depressed, nothing seems to really matter. Close quotes. Or, quote, I'm a lousy wife and mother. I can't seem to do anything well enough. Close quotes. Or, quote, I'm the life and soul of every party, but I don't have any really good friends. Close quotes. So when someone that you've just met asks you about yourself, you may tell them about your job, your interests, and your family. 
We tend to define ourselves by our position in society, our education, our favorite sports teams, our hobbies. <clears throat> our doctors might define us by our health issues, our accountants by how much money we have. We are labeled, categorized, and defined in many different ways. Society has encouraged us to project an outward image that is often at odds with what we feel inside. We strive to look good, to dress well, to display the trappings of a chosen style, to possess the gadgets and status symbols that will allow us to be judged favorably by our neighbors. This obsession with appearance is the result of having lost touch with who we really are. We do not want anyone to see who we think we really are, so we are constantly on guard to hide the aspects of ourselves that we despise. There is a subconscious part of our identity made up of our core beliefs, many of which may be hidden from our own view. Nonetheless, this collection of beliefs drives our behaviors. It literally chooses our feelings and our experiences for us. This is the small s self, or what we call the ego. This set of beliefs is what I actually believe I am. Many of us are not even aware that our minds have a made-up, quote, self, close quotes, and that it is running the show and wreaking havoc in our lives. If you recognize a pattern of behavior in your life, for instance, finding yourself in some kind of frustrating situation over and over again. Dr. Michael Rice would say, why is this happening to me again? Then you can be sure that the pattern is driven by subconscious beliefs. The good news is that by becoming aware of those beliefs and bringing them to light, you can transform your behavior patterns. This is how addictions are healed. This is how chronic stress is relieved. This is how depression becomes a memory. In order to begin to do the work necessary to become truly happy, we must first get a clear idea of who we think we are. This chapter will show you how the ego develops, the self that we think we are based on unrecognized core beliefs. The development of core beliefs. For most of us, our parents looked at us with pure love and absolute delight when we were born. They cuddled and comforted us, fed us, changed us, and marveled at every new stage in our development. We were perfect in their eyes. As children, we are totally egocentric. We automatically assume that the world is entirely about us. Adoring parents give us the message that not only are we safe and taken care of, we are also inherently worthwhile and deserving of love. But there comes a point, sooner or later, when something happens and a parent or a caregiver reacts to us in a way that is less than loving. Perhaps mom had a difficult day and reacts with irritation when we throw food from the high chair. Or maybe dad comes home drunk. 
Now, having known only loving parents before, we now experience uneasiness. And we assume that we must have done something to cause this new and unexpected behavior by a parent. Our young mind will always assume that it is our fault. How many times did our mother or father say, quote, you make me so happy, close quotes. It stands to reason that if I, as a baby, can make an adult happy, then I can also cause their unhappiness. When mom gets angry again, or dad comes home drunk for the third or fourth time, we will use this additional evidence to cement a belief that we are bad, unworthy, unlovable, and destined to be a victim, or any one of a number of other negative beliefs. This can include the assumption that if we were truly lovable, dad would not drink and mom would never be irritated. Now, this might sound a little insane to you, and yet that is how we all formed what we now call our personality or our character. Once such a belief is firmly established, we will begin to look at the world through the lens of that belief. If we believe we're bad, we will keep a record of every time we are scolded or punished in some way. While we must overlook the many times that we had fun with our parents, we must overlook those memories because in order to preserve and strengthen the beliefs that I hold about myself, I cannot allow contradictory evidence to enter my awareness. Here's a quote from The Course in Miracles. Quote, No one can convince you of a truth you do not want, close quotes. Through the lens of our beliefs, we will focus on the things that seem to go wrong and all the ways we are treated badly or unfairly. This next couple of sentences in a paragraph has been highlighted by many people who've read this Kindle book. And it reads as follows. Any core belief demands evidence to be sustained. And so we will behave in such a way that the necessary evidence will be supplied. For instance, we may subconsciously provoke the anger of a parent or the irritation of a teacher or being left out by our group of friends. These events will produce the feeling of shame and rejection that the core belief requires to maintain its hold. So, Diedrich is proposing a mechanism that drives us once we download a negative core belief and that that negative core belief demands evidence in order for it to be sustained, so we act in ways to gather evidence to prove to ourselves the truth of the core belief, even though it's negative and painful. So here he goes on. In other words, the deeply buried belief that there is something shameful about who I am will direct me to act in ways that elicit the feeling of shame. The feedback loop is shown in the illustration in this book, and it strengthens the beliefs which coalesce to form our identity. And that core belief will remain in control of every aspect of our lives until we learn that it can be challenged and transformed. There's a behavior that brings on a feeling that results in a judgment 
that eventually becomes a core belief that then drives us to seek evidence to support that belief, which drives us to do a behavior which strengthens the feeling, and around and around we go. He goes on. Young children typically assume that it is somehow their fault if their parents get a divorce. If we were accustomed to hearing our parents telling us, quote, you make me so happy, close quotes, then when they're not happy, we will conclude that somehow it was our fault they weren't happy. Now, there may have been parents who were happy all the time, but I have not had the pleasure of meeting any. So all of us made up a belief that we were responsible for our parents' happiness, and then later in life that we were responsible for our partner's happiness. One definition of relationship, hell, is to hold yourself responsible for your partner's happiness. Diedrich writes, when my first daughter was born, I was drunk in the delivery room. However, when I laid eyes on my new little girl, I thought, she's the most incredible thing I've ever seen, and I'm going to stop drinking because I want to be there for her. However, I didn't stop drinking. What's the core belief she might have developed as a result of having a father who was an alcoholic? She might have developed something like, quote, I'm not the most incredible thing he's ever seen. There's something wrong with me. Otherwise, he would stop drinking. I have learned that every child of alcoholic parents has this belief. The fact that I wouldn't give up drinking at the time, even for my beautiful daughter, provided further evidence of my own core beliefs that I was worthless, I was monstrous, and I was weak. As a matter of fact, the identity of self that I made up could not afford to stop drinking. It's not possible to go against the core belief. The core belief will ultimately win. Every single one of us has made up some limiting core beliefs about ourselves, and it is these beliefs that run or ruin our lives. This happens even without us being aware of them. Some of the core beliefs that are most common to people are, I am not loved or lovable. I am not important. I don't matter. I'm not supported. I have nothing to offer. Whatever I do will be wrong. It will never be enough. I deserve to be punished. I'm bad. I can lose love. I'm not good enough. There's something seriously wrong with me. I'm guilty. I'm a victim. These and other core beliefs were made up by me and you at an early age as a result of how we interpreted certain things that occurred. People spoke to us in a particular tone of voice. There was a conflict. Perhaps some drama ensued. And this chain of events had an impact on our young and very impressionable minds. So the next section is titled, The Red Truck Cycle. He's already talked about the red truck. So he says, in my own life, there are still times when I feel a rage welling up if I perceive that I am not supported. This can happen at a meeting if support means or seems to be lacking for one of my ideas, 
or when my partner does not agree with a statement I just made, or when a business partner asks for a few more days to consider my proposal. I have traced this back to an incident that occurred fairly shortly after the war. I mentioned it earlier. It was my father's refusal to retrieve my red truck, which I'd accidentally dropped into a pond. To me, he didn't seem to care how much the truck meant to me, and I interpreted his reaction to mean that I was not supported and not loved. At the deepest level, I used it to form the belief that I'm worthless. This cycle of belief formation and the subsequent evidence it demands is illustrated in the following diagram. There's a memory of the red truck. There's the judgment that I am not supported, followed by the belief that concretizes within me, crystallizes within me, that I am not supported, leading to any kind of an experience in my life that I can project that interpretation onto, which generates a feeling of anger, which stirs up the feeling of the memory of the red truck, which solidifies the belief that I am not supported, and around we go. The anger I feel in response to a comment at a staff meeting is the same anger I felt toward my father years ago. The bad news about the core belief, that that belief in this case is I am not supported, is that that belief demands evidence. And so, without realizing it, I will subsequently behave in a way that will show me how I'm bad, how I'm worthless, and unlovable. So even if I am supported, I'll think that I'm not. Or worse, I will reject support that comes my way. I'll sabotage the respect or the love that's being offered until it's finally withdrawn. And then I'll say, see, I knew it. I knew nobody would love me and supported me. Fortunately, by now, I've identified and mostly healed that belief of not being supported. And I've also trained my mind to catch any feelings of rage as they arise. When they do, I immediately process the mistaken belief that I am not supported. I have been the fortunate recipient of astonishing levels of support in my life, all of my life. But only in the last 20 years or so have I learned to allow this love and support to become an integral part of my life. There's an interesting side note to the red truck story. While recently having dinner with my elder brother, Yust, he shared some memories from our days in Indonesia. He then told a story about dropping his red truck into the fish pond. It's exactly the story that I have told. I looked at him with amazement and said, that's truly remarkable. That is my story. I have told and retold this story in workshops for years. I never heard it from you. So the question is, what actually did happen? The truth is we'll never know. It either happened how he remembered it, that it was his truck that fell in the water and I took on his rage, or vice versa. It doesn't matter. Regardless of what actually happened, I developed a destructive belief based on that incident 
And I played out that belief for a long time. It's so important to realize that whether a memory is based on fact or is purely of my own imagination is not important. In my mind, it happened, and I suffer from the made-up memory because I have made it real, because of what I have made it mean in my life. Tracing upset feelings to core beliefs formed in our past is the method employed by the Choose Again six-step process. This link between our feelings and our memories has been well documented by Dr. Joe Dispenza in his book, You Are the Placebo. By investigating the memories that are linked to feelings, we can discover the beliefs that are generated at that time. Once a belief is uncovered and exposed as merely a belief, the barriers to happiness begin to dissolve. However, when a belief is left unrecognized and unchallenged, it persists. It produces more evidence of its validity. It becomes stronger and stronger, cementing a fortress of defending against love or joy. The next section is titled, Should I Have Been Born? He writes, let's look at another personal example. In Chapter 1, I discussed my life in the concentration camp in Indonesia and how I sensed that my mother wanted to die but stayed alive for my brother and I. Sixty-five years later, I am at our healing center in Costa Rica on a day when absolutely everything is going wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, but completely off the rails wrong. I felt as though everything was crashing down around me, and I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. This was a very powerful feeling, wasn't I was not familiar with. I asked myself, what is the message of this powerful feeling? And the message was, quote, I should not have been born, close quotes. Now, I had heard that belief expressed by others about themselves, but I'd never recognized it as a belief of my own. And yet, there it was. I realized that I needed to do some work to identify the core belief that was making me feel so miserable. I couldn't access the memory that produced it so I did some holotropic breathing. This is a highly effective transformational tool that we use at the Choose Again centers. Rapid, strong in-breaths over a long period of time with trained supervision. And it induces a highly oxygenated brain, which produces a state in which one's normal defenses are bypassed. This often allows deeply suppressed subconscious thoughts to surface. What was eventually revealed was that I had a deep set of feelings of guilt associated with my mother. The sheer strength of the guilt feelings indicated that I had hurt her in some horrible way. I know I had hurt her in the small ways that typically happen within normal family dynamics, but this mother load of guilt 
was much, much deeper. And it was disproportionate to the circumstances of our early relationship, or so I thought. Breathwork revealed was that my mother wanted to die in the camp because because it was utterly unbearable. The only reason she didn't was to ensure that my brother and I would survive. And thus, I downloaded the belief that I had hurt her very deeply for a number of years, although we actually did nothing but survive. This realization made sense, and I could process it quickly. The belief that I had felt so strongly, however, was that I should never have been born. Now, how could I have gotten that message? Well, I got it from my guilt as a child, and I also got it from the fact that my mother had been pregnant with me when she, my father, and my brother were fleeing the Japanese, traveling into the mountains in order to escape the invaders. What was the message I'd picked up energetically in utero from my mother? This is not a great time to be pregnant. I'm hoping you can see how this double whammy of similar beliefs combined to create this debilitating conviction that I had about myself. It laid buried in my psyche, waiting for just the right moment to surface, which it did on that day at the center 65 years later. This happens with all beliefs. They will surface sooner or later. Next section is titled, Guilt, the Common Denominator. Guilt is found in the psyche of everyone on the planet, and from it springs all manner of other erroneous beliefs that run our lives. Let's consider the justice system. In North America, there exists the largest jail population per capita of any society in the history of mankind. I would argue that every single person in jail has a strong underlying belief that they are guilty. Now you might say, well, they are guilty. They stole, they murdered, they committed arson, and so on. My response would be, yes, they did those things, but why did they do them? They did them in order to get evidence for the belief that they are guilty. In other words, the belief that they're guilty preceded their criminal behaviors. Some 1,800 years ago, Augustine of Hippo saw this play out early in his life with incredible clarity. And he quotes, Behold, now let my heart tell you what it was seeking there, that I should gratuitously wanton, I should be gratuitously wanton having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself. Base soul falling from your firmament to utter destruction, not seeking anything anything through the shame but the shame itself. Diedrich writes, not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. Do you identify with this insight? 
if we have a strong belief in our guilt, we are going to find a way to express it. Whether it means being unfaithful to our partner, running our business in such a way that we'll be saddled with a huge lawsuit, or getting into major debt and having to declare bankruptcy, whatever it is, we're going to find evidence for our guilt. When people come to a healing circle and, and explain why they are there, the symptoms vary. Typically, there will be someone with a treatment-resistant depression or a substance abuse issue, someone who's dropped out of university because they didn't get good grades, or another person who is wondering how to keep her second or third marriage together. All of them have the same issue. It's a deep sense of self-hatred, a strong belief in guilt, or self-hatred based on guilt, even though the presenting symptoms look different. Whether this hatred takes the form of depression, chronic stress, alcohol, philandering, or overworking, it makes no difference. The symptom is never the issue. Belief in guilt is universal. Underneath every upset is guilt. Underneath every twinge of sadness is guilt. Underneath every expression of grief is guilt. I believe there's not a single person who doesn't have a low-grade, constant sense of chronic guilt. We all do. The questions we need to face about it are, number one, am I aware of my belief in my guilt? Number two, where does this guilt come from? And number three, how and when did I make this up? To an even deeper one, why do we all all feel guilty. That has a simple, if not obvious, answer. Guilt finds its genesis in the belief that we are no longer part of the oneness. The oneness that is the truth of the divine. The oneness that is only love. When we feel that we're no longer part of this divine oneness, and so we must have done something to be kicked out of the club of the divinity. The primary guilt, I feel, is because the self I have invented is in direct contradiction to the truth of my capital S self, my true self, as part of the one mind. This topic will be discussed more fully in Chapter 3. The next section is titled Core Beliefs and Addiction. When people come to see us with an addiction, they typically want to talk about being addicted to substances. However, substances are never the issue. The substances are just the tip of an iceberg of feeling. We may feel long-standing tension in our body. We may feel desperately lonely. We may be chronically anxious or worried. Or we may get angry at the drop of a hat. These are our feelings. Feelings have a biochemical component, and we are addicted to these biochemicals. That's how we become addicted to those feelings. All right, where do those feelings come from? Our feelings are chosen by the beliefs we have about ourselves. If I have a belief that I am not supported, 
I will find evidence to show me that I'm not being supported. When I see that evidence in any form, I will feel rage. And it is that feeling of rage that I'm addicted to. In this vicious cycle, I become addicted to the feeling of rage associated with the idea that I'm not supported. We can begin to understand the roots of our addictions to feelings and to substances when we can answer the question, who do you think you are? Thus, the key to unraveling our deep sadness, depression, substance abuse, workaholism, eating disorders, and other debilitating symptoms is to tackle the underlying belief structure that makes up who we think we are. This has been the key to the remarkable success of the Choose Again work and the success that we have enjoyed working with clients of all kinds of presenting issues, whether it was depression, stressed relationships, chronic anxiety, or substance abuse. The six-step process is the method by which this dismantling of core beliefs can be achieved. Before I committed to my own healing work, my alcohol intake was substantial. I was drunk almost every night for about 30 years. This abuse was purely a choice I made based on my deep sense of self-hatred. This self-hatred was the outcome of a set of core beliefs that included my being unlovable, my being guilty, my being worthless, my being deserving of punishment. These beliefs demanded evidence which my alcoholic behavior supplied in ample form. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for help and I learned their perspective on the issue. Alcoholism is an illness and I was an alcoholic and I'm powerless over it. I believed this for a while. After having worked on myself using the Choose Again methodology, I came to understand that it's the ego which believes it's powerless over alcohol and over many other things. Now, I would never say that I'm powerless over anything. This is because I've learned that who I am in truth, beyond the ego, who I am in truth is infinitely powerful and not powerless. AA has helped many people, and I admire its record. It's a magnificent organization that saved literally millions of lives, and it continues to do so. And yes, it could go further. Many AA veterans who have been at our center stayed with surprise. Wait a minute. This is the missing link. A key question needs to be asked. Why was I drinking in the first place? Where did that come from? If you're drinking too much, and you need to ask yourself this question, what's the purpose of my drinking? What is its function? What do I get to be right about when I drink? It's the urgency and the necessity of drinking that needs to be addressed. This urgency and necessity is informed by an underlying belief that makes me want to destroy the self-image that I hate, that I've created. In my case, not only was I drinking too much, I was also doing drugs, philandering, and sabotaging my business on all levels. I was trying to self-destruct. I did not succeed. Sadly, some people do succeed 
or remain on a self-destructive treadmill. Why did I drink so much? Well, for two reasons. One, I was on a misguided search for a higher self through a transcendent experience. In my self-styled fanaticism, I thought booze was going to take me there. I thought it would transport me to that spiritual realm that I was seeking. Is it just a coincidence that they call alcohol spirits? The second reason I drank was to destroy the self that I hated so much. Why didn't that work? Because the self that I hated so much can't be destroyed. I was trying to destroy a belief, the belief in my worthlessness. But you can't actually destroy a belief. What you can do is withdraw your attachment to it. You can take away the faith in your own belief. And when you do, it will wither. With it will go your self-destructive feelings and behaviors. So, we have more to read. We'll pick up uh, as appropriate next time. And continue reading from the book Choose Again by Diedrich Wolzak. I thank you all for being here. I will remind you that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are the energy of love expressing in form, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate you. I like Diedrich Wolzak. How do you say his last name? Wolzak. Wolzak. Well, Zach, yeah, well, I get like, a uh, like choose again back. every a daily quote from him every day. It's really yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, at the at the beginning of the show, I I read the most recent one from Diedrich and the most recent one from Sandy Wilder, and the synchronicity was impressive. So, oh, okay. All right, well, have have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Manchester's Radio, and today is Tuesday, September 26th. Call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue. A little hand goes up, and I know that you want to talk and that you're not just listening, and so press 1, and that puts you up there, and we'd love to hear from you because when you direct the way that you need the show to go to support you by asking your questions, then that helps us and it always helps somebody else. I mean, we hear daily when we've addressed a topic, you know, from one person, there's other people that call in and say, that was perfect for me today. And so if you're on the show and you hear another person commenting and it fits perfect for you, press one and put your hand up and let us know how it impacts you and your experience with whatever topic we've been talking about. That makes the show go a whole lot easier than doing monologues. And uh, I'll just let you know that I am in the process of putting, you know, we talked yesterday about do those solutions and the punishment avoidance thoughts. And so I've actually, I am putting a list up on the website and you'll be able to access that. Um, I've got to still add it to the menu, but it's actually on the website right now. 
So that might help some of you. You know, we also have a feeling wheel and an emotion chart uh, up there if you go to the website on the very front page. If you scroll down a little bit past the big blue buttons, which are the key places, then you'll also see some quick print things, like there is the quick print wake-up sheet, the quick print feeling wheel, the commitment, commitment to myself. But the feeling wheel is uh, one that I'm speaking of right now, and so there is a wheel that, like in the middle of it, it has like mad, and then going out from mad just a little bit is critical or hateful or selfish, angry, hostile, hurt. A little bit further out from that is skeptical, um, irritated, jealous, frustrated, sarcastic, distant. To kind of help you, you know, if you if you have a challenge in trying to identify what emotion you're feeling, then this sometimes can help you to narrow it down. And then below it is the uh, emotional emotions slash thoughts list. And it'll have like, for example, um, under anger, there might be abrasive or aggressive, annoyed, argumentative, belligerent. So those, these two lists, this, this wheel and this list, can help you to identify what's going on if, you, if that is a challenge for you in uh, narrowing it down. You know, there's uh, worked with a couple of people in the last few weeks, and one of their main challenges is that when they were a child, they were not allowed to feel. You know, it's like, you know, if you cry, I'll give you something to cry about. If you're angry, you know, they threaten to whip you for being angry and just different things like that. And so it gets embedded that I'm not allowed to feel. I'm not allowed to express what's going inside of me. And uh, a good example the other day, Aria and her didn't want to go to school because her mom and dad both were off. But she was only going to have to go a half a day, and then they had some plans to do together for the afternoon. But she did not want to go to school. And Ryan, my son, was telling her, you know, you have to go, and we'll pick you up early. And, you know, and she got mad and or her madness came up, she stuck out her tongue at him and took off running to go into the bathroom and slammed the door. Now, she's only five, and this is already being triggered. And um, so he he was going after her, and he put his hand out to stop the bathroom door from uh, closing shut. And when it hit his hand, it bounced back, and the doorknob hit her in the mouth. And so she was telling us then when she came over that afternoon, and she showed us her lips and and we were like, well, what happened? And she goes, I was so full of emotions and didn't know what to do. And, you know, so gave Michael an opportunity to talk with her about emotions and that, you know, you can identify them, you can cancel the goal, and instead of letting the emotion take over, that, you know, you could deal with it. And Michael's joined us now, so I don't know if you have something else you want to add to that with your conversation with Aria. But no, just I, that we're so blessed to have her and her willingness. <laughs> and, yeah. And we're blessed and, to have this audience. One of the things, oh, excuse me, go ahead, Sweet. I was just going to say in that she's, you know, learning the terminology, to, like the just to be able to say I was full of emotions. You know, and that comes from working with her with the emotional chart. You know, she'll come over and we have her, even in her gratitude book, it's like identify what you're feeling today. And so, you know, we encourage her to acknowledge her feelings and then if it's something that's less than love, to be able to let it go and to get back to being loved. 
Well, why are we here, Nini? To be loved. She knows it, and she teaches it to us. So we're we're so blessed to uh, to have her to keep guiding us, and and we're blessed. I'm I'm realizing deep appreciation for this audience and the fact that you're here lending listening ears that keeps us moving and learning what it is that we're here to teach. <laughs> so Richard Bach in his book Illusion says we teach best that which we most need to learn, and. I did an interview this morning. I don't know, did you talk about that at all, sweetie? No, I did not. Okay, well, anyway, we'll, we'll once we get it, they, they have to edit it and do all the stuff they do on their end. But uh, a company in New York somehow came across us and uh, decided to award us a Business Person of the Year award, and that included two interviews. And so we did a... Uh, a video interview with a woman who has played on the uh, TV show Sex in the City. Her name is Jill Nicolini. And we kind of started out with some thoughts about the work and sort of forgot that the the idea of the interview was supposed to be, was supposed to be a congratulatory interview for, for winning this award. And uh, instead, it just became a high-speed, fast-forward conversation about forgiveness, about functioning as human beings. And one of the things I, I realized as I was speaking it for probably the 12,000th time is that denial, you know, we, we define denial as thinking or speaking as though something outside of us is a cause of what's moving inside of us. When we do that, we hide parts of our mind from ourselves. And what became clear to me is denial is a mental illness. Denial is what leads to mental illness. It is one, and it leads to deeper ones as long as we keep living there. You know, listen to the people, listen to the conversation people are having about how somebody else is to blame and just watch how well their minds function. And uh, it, it's interesting to watch how people, the deeper they degrade into blame, the less functional their minds become and the more in disarray their lives end up being. And so the, uh, the fact that we get, we get to keep having this conversation with you, we keep putting it out there, reinforcing it, and subtle new levels of understanding come in, subtle, subtle new pieces of the puzzle came in, and uh, this interview ended up being, it was a 30-minute Zoom interview, and we'll certainly make you let you know when, when it's completed. We'll make sure there's a link. It'll be on our uh, YouTube page, and we're supposed to do a second one next week, so we'll see how that what we do with that. I mean, end up keying into a short form of the worksheet and explaining how forgiveness works. We, but we just kind of talked about the whole picture of denial, dissociation, how the mind works. Sin is just an arch return. That means off the mark. Energy, we're physiology. We're designed to function as love. Told the story about, you know, Ari right from the very beginning. Nini, why are we here? To be love. Papa, why are we here? To be love. Now we say to Ari, why are we here? And she's real clear, clear and crisp to be love. And so we teach best that which we most need to learn. And I feel like I learned it all on another level today. So thank you. And beyond that, 
I'm not sure where the conversation is going to go. I spent my uh, my morning focused on this interview, and actually I needed to get out and do something physical, so I went and harvested about uh, 15 or 20 sunflowers, cleaned the sunflower heads, getting ready to uh, to bake them up, and. Uh, put the stems into the compost, set them out of the ground. So that was my morning project. Once I finished the interview, I just did a quick, got to get some physiology moving, get my feet on the earth. and So all the way around, I'm feeling very blessed and appreciative. How about you? What's happening in your world? Is there anything we can do to support you? Maybe there's something you appreciate that you'd like to share with us. Maybe you have a question. If so... If you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, a call-in number is 563-999-3581, 563-999-3581. If you call that number, you'll be listening to the show directly, and then if you push one, we'll be having a conversation through the magic of technology. So thank you, Blog Talk Radio. Appreciation for you being there for us that we get to do this every day and, and we get to connect people all over the world in a conversation, which is pretty amazing. You know, we uh, we don't get paid to do this show. We pay to do it, but it's pretty minuscule for what the service is. For, you know, I don't care whether you're in Sweden right now or somewhere in Asia or Bob, I hope you're there, down under or up over, whichever way you one chooses to perceive it. But we get to connect all these folks, and then just minutes after the show is complete, you can download and re-listen, and you can send a link to anybody in the world. I mean, it's just amazing technology, amazing. So in deep appreciation for that. But the most appreciated technology for me is that there was this man 2,000 years ago who explained to the world the keys to how the human mind works and the technology for removing insanity, for removing mental disorders, which in turn removes physiological disorders because, of course, mind and body are inseparable. They are one. We've been trained to think of it as something separate and, you know, one has no impact on the other, but there is no dis-ease in the human body that doesn't create a corresponding dis-ease in the human mind. There is no dis-ease in the human mind that does not create a, a correlating disease in the human body, so-called body, because they are one energy system looking from two different directions. They appear to be different, but... They're just different aspects of one singular event that we call a body-mind unit, and it isn't even a body. It's an energy system. One of the things I point out in my interview with Jill this morning is Einstein. On such things as matter, we've been all wrong, all in error. What we have heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibration has been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses there is no matter. What do you suppose if you put in the matter called your physiology, which I would offer is designed for the incarnation and expression of love, what do you suppose happens if you put hate? Of course, that has to be done with the mind, right? 
Can the body hate? I don't think so. The mind has to be taught to hate, has to be taught thought disorders. And then that hate enters physiologically into the form, expresses literally, if we were measuring hate going into the form, we would see a literal, what on the level where we believe in chemistry, we'd see a literal chemical change in the cell, in the organ, in the structure. So just like the coin, if you look at the head and the tail of the coin, the coin is singular, one singular event. There are two perspectives on it, but only one coin. So with the so-called body-mind unit, there are two perspectives, mind and body, but they are one expression that we're looking at from two different points of view. So if you bring correction on one end, you get the opportunity for correction on the other. That's why we're doing holistic teaching, understanding holy. Holy, not being down your hands and knees, or down your knees with your hands folded, but rather whole. Change your dietary regimen, you change your mind. Change your mind, it's easier to change your dietary regimen. Start doing all of the things, and one of the things I talk about in the uh, when we're starting out an intensive at Heartland, or if it's an, an intensive on Zoom, is that if if you have one disease habit and it's a monster, it's a big one, and you try to change that one disease habit, tendency will be if you you know if it's way over on the right on the pendulum and you swing it all the way back to the left, it's not going to be long before it's swinging back to the right again. But if you start looking at all of the factors that go into making you vital enough to be able to access what needs to be healed and develop the understanding and the use of the tools for healing, then each factor, just a little shift in each place, you know, the shift might be as simple as, hmm, I heard there's only, there are only two oils that you really want to be putting in your body. Olive oil, if you're going to use something in that regard. And if you're going to do things like heat it in a pan, then you want a high temperature oil like coconut oil. All of those vegetables, go look at all the chips, all the popcorn, all the stuff that comes in a bag has got oil. And what you'll see is, most of it, first of all, is chemicalized and genetically modified. Corn oil and canola oil and sesame oil and safflower oil, there are no healthy oils. All of those oils are destructive to the human form when they are isolated out from the food that they're a part of. Sunflower oil. I just harvested some sunflower seeds. We're going to get to eat lots of sunflower oil, but it's going to be part of a sunflower seed. It's not going to be an oil separated out, probably gone rancid, or has to be filled with preservatives in order for it not to go rancid. So you just make a little change. You make a little change in that you start to pay attention to your language. And, you know, you just look at maybe one or two words you use that are based in hostility that are habitual in your speech, and you decide to change those words. And they start looking at the thoughts behind those words, and you start dealing with, you maybe do some forgiveness around those words. 
and I do a worksheet here and there. You bring in a new set of words like my commitment. Each factor creates a shift, and if you do enough factors simultaneously, you've got the equivalent of taking that one big thing and swing the pendulum the other way, but it's a number of little factors, and they don't swing back in the opposite direction or swing back farther. So just start making incremental changes in a number of different areas, and healing happens. It's most most amazing when you allow that to occur. You can say, well, you know, I've got this hostility and I realize that's not healthy, so I want to get rid of my hostility. But in the back of your mind, you go, uh, I need hostility to protect me. Guess what? You're never going to be alleviated of your hostility as long as you have a use for it. So you have to come to a point where you make a point where you make a choice to say, "Okay, hostility is useless." Hmm. Great lesson, one of the earliest lessons in Course of Miracles. In my defenselessness, my power and safety lie. See, if I set up a defense, a defense is a reflection of attack thoughts. If I have attack thoughts, then I set up the frequency of attack. When I set up the frequency of defense, I set up a resonance to draw attack. When I forgive offense, when I forgive defense, then attack has nothing to latch onto. It has nothing that attracts it to me anymore. So when I begin to forgive as to my attack, well, there are certain people, Michael, that just deserve it. Well, you know something? I've been watching what some people are doing, and boy, you're right. They deserve it big time. But the question isn't do they deserve it. The question is do you deserve it? Because if you engage in it, you got the original. They just get a carbon copy, (laughs) and they may not be home for delivery. And that original is coming right back at you. So before you start dishing something out, which has to go in and through you to get out, ask yourself the question, do I deserve this? If I don't deserve this, then I don't do it to anybody. Because again, I can't engage in energy without engaging in energy. And when I engage in energy, I've got the original of it whatever happens from there. And if I recognize that I have a lot of defense and or attack energy, then there's a place to initiate the forgiveness process. There's a place to sit down in worksheets and start to forgive as to my attack or my defense thoughts. If you don't know about the forgiveness process or how it works, we invite you to go to our website, whyagain.org, upper left-hand corner of the page, right up the very tippy top, start here, click it and start. It will give you everything you need to know about forgiveness. Now, some people say, oh, that's cool, Michael, I've got five bucks and five minutes here. Well, you know, if all you got is five bucks and five minutes, then... 
Might as well forget it. Because what you're doing is you're committing yourself to change the direction of generational lifetimes of engaging in disease energy. It's not just yourself that you're dealing with. You're dealing with the patterns of the generation. You go back to the ancient era. They said, look to the lives of the fathers, for ours are but a shadow. The whole thing's already laid out. Does that mean it's a done deal? No, it's just laid out. I mean, you can change the layout anytime you want if you develop choice, but if you don't know there's a difference between decisions and choice, then your mind is going to make all kinds of decisions, and the decisions are going to be made based on the lives of the fathers, and you'll think your decisions are choices because nobody taught you there's a difference. You know, the simplest, one of the things I shared with uh, Jill Nicolini this morning was, you know, imagine I get behind the wheel of a car. I don't know where the brake is. I don't know where the gas is. I don't know where the steering wheel is. I don't know where the gear shift is, but I'm going to drive the car. Well, good luck in successfully driving the car. Probably going to be a rough ride. Did anybody tell you there was a thing, a filter in your mind called Rockman? Who told you that? Did anybody explain to you that stored in your structure is every thought, every feeling, every reality, and especially every energy that's off the mark from every one of your generations? Did anybody tell you that and how to get rid of it? Well, if they didn't, then you're probably scratching your head going, why is this happening to me again? You know something? There's a book about that. And the book's free. Go to our website. Again, go to whyagain.org. There's a picture of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? Right on the homepage. Click on it, drill down, download it in whatever of the, I think there's something like 14 different languages now. It's free. I can't sell you a new book because it's out of print. You can go to Amazon and eBay, and there are usually books available there that you can buy pretty cheaply. If you feel like you know you like the feel of a, a book in your hands, but go grab it from the internet. Start reading. Your self-forgiveness works. And again, if you're not engaged in the forgiveness process, then go to your app store on your phone. In the words Heartland, one word, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C, forgiveness. You get that about half typed in, you'll see a little red heart that comes up, glowing heart. There it is. Click on it, download it. I think it's probably the most private app available for a cell phone. I've never seen one that doesn't have permission after permission after permission after permission. We only have one. That is permission to use the Internet. I have an internet connection to operate. But other than that, no permissions required. You can do the forgiveness process. If once you've completed it, you'd like to save your work, save the worksheet that you do, then when you click save, it's going to ask you for permission to write it to your drive because you've got to have somewhere to write it and save it. But they're the only two permissions involved in using our app. You can ask questions from anywhere in the app, and we'll answer them. You know, when you go to a page, if you're on step three of the worksheet, and there's something you don't understand, well, just click button. Hey, 
Explain what this means in step three. Hit send. Jeannie will get the email. She'll read it to us on the show. And we'll answer the question. And then we'll send an email back to you with a link to this show. And you'll have your answers. So we're doing everything that we possibly can to make this technology available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And if we can support you, that's what we're here to do. So again, if you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number, 563-999-3581. If you call that number, you're listening to the show. And then if you push 1... Through the magic of blog talk technology that will raise a hand in the control panel. And Jeannie will know you want to talk to us. She'll introduce you by your area code and we'll be having a conversation. And we have a hand up. So Miss Jeannie, do we did you say we've got a hand up? We do. How and cool it's is Ms. that? Susan, six one, six oh, one zero, right. you're on the air. Cool. Nice. We missed her the other nice day. We just didn't quite catch you the other day. So glad you're here, young lady. How are you? Thanks. Uh, okay. Things have been going on. Uh, whose life isn't having things going on? We had to say goodbye to my son's dog, which we have shared the rearing of yesterday. We put her down from she had oh. cancer. So that was that a hard be difficult. thing. Yeah, 12 years old, wonderful mutt. So anyway, um, last week, uh, it's amazing the synchronicity of things. Dr. Tim was talking about the synchronicity of the two readings he did today. And um, the topics that it's as if we probably all of us on the planet are fighting the same, fighting with or for or against the same issues because it... I hear so many people saying, wow, I needed to hear that. That was exactly what was going on. But last week I told you that I have had this, these flu inoculations. And right. I had had a, a talk with Dr. Tim previously and told him that I, I was feeling incredibly negatively about our house person downstairs. And it was worse than ever and when you said in the next show you said healing crisis i thought oh my god of course physically i'm in lousy shape and the toxins are coming up mentally too and that was helpful it was like okay that's what's going on right when that's going on willingness yeah well the the thing that occurs to me is that you know dr tim starts or ends his show with your love, we're all love, and, you know, and I, I wish I could. Cause he Only thing is real. Yeah. So I thought to myself, this invective, this nastiness is not me. So what is it? Because I think it's me and the worst of me, but it just helped to say this isn't really me. And then the day after, having had all that toxic reaction, my vitality was up amazingly, and I didn't literally, really did not feel feel those things toward him. 
I felt right. glimmers of love, which I'm looking for. <laughs> I think, what a great opportunity. I have this person living in my house. Wouldn't it be fun if I actually loved the guy? Now, I know, you never love anybody. Shut up, Michael. Don't you mean if you actually people. functioned as love toward him? Yeah, I understand that one. <laughs> right. That your, yeah. your ego self <laughs> right. that has old hostility and fear-based thought disorders aren't active and looking to him to be responsible right. for them, that, that sort of thing you mean? Yeah, I could, I'd support you in that. <laughs> mm-hmm, thank you. So uh, anyway, I just I wanted to thank, because you, you and Dr. Tim often work in tandem, even though you don't truly don't discuss what you're going to say in your show. But he had said, why don't you write down everything. Just do a lot of journal writing, sort of like the other side of it, mind shifter, let it all fall out. Well, after two pages of nastiness, I even destroyed it. It was so awful. I thought, there it is. Okay, I'm having a good hard look at how bad. Old thought disorders. Yeah, tons. And then you come on the show and you give me a mind shifter, which had to do with it's safe and healing for me to speak my mind no matter what. And I'm thinking, the heck it is. I didn't do your mind shifter. I wrote it at the top and I, I wrote my, oh, no, it's much too dangerous. And then I went right back into the writing of the journal stuff because all that came out was negative stuff, the negative stuff, how how dangerous it would be, how awful, destructive, unfair, unwarranted, everything. So I'm not Did you do any worksheets on them? Yep, I've done, and I burn them too. I know people save them and keep them and they look at them. I don't want, I don't want them around. So you don't want anybody to find them? I did. (laughs) I don't want anybody to find them. Right. We did an intensive out so, west several years ago, and there was a gentleman that, that was at the workshop, and he really dug in and was doing some work. And on his way out, it was in the fall, and we had a wood-burning stove that heated the place. And on the way out, he had a stack of worksheets. He's stuffing them in the fire. It's like, what are you doing? He said, I don't want to take these home. <laughs> like, okay. It's basically the same stuff every time, though. After doing a gazillion... It's nuances, it's variations on a theme, and it's always, for me, the same. I have so many, I am like the very incarnation of my power person. Sometimes I'm nothing but my power person. You're not alone. That's, that's, when, again, it's the definition. When the stress is up and the chips are down, the Mm -hmm. only behavior possible is to do power person did to you that you hated the most. Until that's removed, that runs the show, and it is what runs the world. Like I really, seriously, 1,000% mean that when I say that. It runs the world. Mm -hmm. Any voice speaking with hostility or fear is replicating a power person dynamic. Yeah. The weird thing is, Michael, my mom would never have said all those things. Her anger was primal and probably very young. She'd just be overwhelmed and she'd thrash us. Okay, I don't even want to keep telling that story except it's useful because if I had said to my mom all the things that I'd like 
would have liked to say in my worst moments to Michael downstairs, she would say, oh, that's horrible. She would never even think of those things. So I've done more with her, her anger than she did. I've become angrier than she was. I'm not angrier, but the form has become diversified and much more, what's the word? Uh, it's gone into adult state. I don't think my mother was in an adult state when she was hitting us. I think she was a child. Right. Anyway, that's not a question, and, but it's sort of an observation. Yeah. Right. And the fact that she would not... And, and this was probably part of her shutdown mechanism was she would not say it because she was not allowed to speak those types of thoughts in the oh, presence. Absolutely. I bet. I just about guarantee in the presence of her power person. Oh, yeah. But because sure. one never gives verbalization of those thoughts, doesn't mean the thought complexes are not there generationally. Remember that statement from the scriptures, look at the lives of the fathers, for ours are but a shadow Mm -hmm. of theirs. So you've got the courage to open up, look at it, speak it, and then be responsible for it and throw it out. That's, That's ultimately what has to be done, because if it's never consciously faced and moved, then it just stays right there in the genes. Well, it's, that's true, and I think about that, and I think the challenge is more than I can manage. I'm not sure, you know, I'm just going sort of one step in front of the other because it's impressive <laughs> uh, how bad it is when it's bad. And things eased up, and I did do in my modified way some of the suggestions you made. We did sit down with Michael and say, um, you know, we've been considering what, for instance, Michael, I read an article in the New York Times that it takes about $12,000 a year to maintain a car. Think of it. Right. With prices yeah. the way they are, there's no way Michael would ever be able to afford a car. And what have we been doing? Looking online, asking friends, do you have an old car we could buy, an old van, So our thinking has completely changed. We're looking for places for him to be in where he's in a city with walking access to everything and he won't have a car. And he's agreeing that that is probably the thing. But it has to be somewhere warm, he thinks, and I think that's good too. So we've changed. I mean, talking to you just sort of moved the needle over. Now we're beginning to talk about realistic places for him to live. And, but it's so hard because he has such anxiety and PTSD that when we bring it up, he starts crying and shaking. We can't even really yeah, yeah. talk to him about it. So, and there's no way he's going to do stuff about it. So, and basically what um, you just told me, is the complex of thought disorders that he carries is so deep and so traumatic that it leaves him disabled. And, and, and one of two things has to occur, you know, this is, you're going to have to face, he's going to have to go into some sort of support for his disability, or he's going to have to face his disability and work through it. It can be worked through. I I understand. We've, we've, 
goaded him a little bit. We've encouraged him, but, uh, you know, there are only two options. I mean, this is, it is a mental disability that, you know, if it comes to, when this starts to enter the conversation, he's shaking and crying, it's now a physical disability. And so it it sounds to me like the conversation is going to have to include, so we're going to have to, you're going to have to end up somewhere where you have support for your mental, emotional, and physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it certainly, I would suspect, more than what you and Tim can do or, or well, would, we, would reasonably do or want to do. And so that's where, you know, the other day when I said, well, so start looking for there are services for people who are in that place to support them, to assist mm-hmm. them. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's state or local or, you know, and, and sadly there are factions in the culture that want to eradicate all support for people in that posture. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very old story. Who, who is your brother's keeper? Who's, who's, uh, who is my brother? You know, the Good Samaritan story. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it's that, that conversation has been going on for thousands of years. And unfortunately there's a very strong faction politically in our culture that wants to eradicate any form of support. And there's a strong faction in our culture that says, you know, we need to be human. We need to be humane here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a a definitely a challenge. I'm here. Yeah. Oh, good. Somebody's trying to call me and I'm ignoring it, but you know how the iPhone is. Things that beep and things. Yeah. Well, um, we do have some names. I've talked to my daughter. She's involved in the Center City affordable housing scene down in Jacksonville. And I'm going to get more aggressive about making some calls. And it's true that Michael has been a tremendous teacher. I'm just sick of being his student. <laughs> I'd like to retire a graduate or something. But I'm not graduating. Yep. Um, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's reasonable. It's reasonable for him to be accountable. And since mm-hmm. he's not mentally capable of being accountable, then it's reasonable for him to find, and if you're going to support him, for you to assist him in finding a place where there are people who have the resources and the purpose of, of doing that for someone. And I think mm-hmm. it's awesome that you've got uh, your daughter in Jacksonville, nice warm place, sunny place where uh, if uh, you know, he can get down there and, and have uh, uh, some of the kinds of services that people in that posture need, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're working on it. And that's the practical end, and it does help to have those things. But just to say, all the little times, big times, I've called the show and, you know, you've always nudged me ahead by an increment at least, Uh, like calling it a healing crisis um, is just great. So, thanks. I really don't have any more to say except I'm just... You know, simply being able to embrace our own foibles, uh, you know, allowing it to come up and, and allowing to be yourself to stay connected to love while doing it. That's that's where the healing happens. 
And yeah. sadly, it's challenge. not a common thing in our culture. Right. So we're here to hold the space for every part of your mind that needs to open, to open and be transmuted by the active presence of love. And one of the things right. I acknowledge about you is the fact that, you know, knowing there were going to be challenges with Michael, you did reach out and you've offered him such awesome support. I think it's just fabulous. Thanks, Michael. I, I think it's I, fabulous. It, it's my it's such an opportunity. If I felt differently, it would be so fun. I think, why am I not just welcoming this and loving it? What what's in it for me? There is a lot of fear. I have to look at. I mean, nope. I should say I am afraid. Not there is fear, but I. If I were as loving to him as I ideally would like to be, I think it's, I have to look into why I don't want to do that. It's not safe or something. I'm not sure what that is. But anyway, I don't mean to. Sounds like a good worksheet. Yeah, it does. And or perhaps a a good exercise would be to sit with him and Mm -hmm. read the commitment to him. It's just, you know, Nothing else needs to be done. Just sit and read the commitment and just let the energy of that space pervade both of you and see where it takes you. That would be one suggestion of what you might do. That's like guaranteeing that we won't ask him to leave, though. I promise to be honest. I promise to love you and uh, respect you. All of the things he will... And and tell you the truth. And tell you the truth. And the mm-hmm. truth is that we are not able to take care of you, but we can help in your mentally disabled state to get you to a place where you can get support, the support you need. I think that was, is a wonderful <laughs> gift to offer him. Because mm. it's not one he's going to do on his own. No, so I think that, sure. you know, I promise to trust you enough to tell you the truth and be true to you and treat you lovingly, gently, with respect, and tell you the truth. And the truth is, mm. this is more than we can handle. But we'll support you in getting to where you've got the support you need. Like, you know, I was driving around here yesterday, and there were about four different homeless people sitting out. You know, there was rain coming. They had umbrellas and and it's just like they have no support whatsoever. Right. I think it's a, an awesome gift that you could tell him the truth, acknowledge <laughs> him for where he's at, and that you are willing to support him and help him in his mental disability, but you can't take responsibility for his life. I think that's a very honest and loving thing to say to him. You know what, Michael? You put your finger right on it. I think when you say, we could say, I can't, we can't take responsibility for your life, I think Tim and I, especially me, feel that that's not true. We could take responsibility for his life. We could have him be our third child. Yeah, and I didn't say, I didn't say telling the truth that you can't do it. 
I'm saying tell them the truth that it's not something that is your job and that you're willing to do. I think that's an honest thing to say to him. Oh, yeah, that's better. No, I have a yeah. life, and it's, and, and it's not my job, but I will support you in going somewhere where I'll help facilitate you going somewhere where you've got this kind of support that will help you to get your life in order, yeah. but not my mm-hmm. job and not a job. I think it's v- very honest and very loving to be able to say, and it's not something that I'm willing to do. I, not necessarily that I'm not capable of. Could I take all of my energy resources and, and perhaps do that? Yes, but I'm not willing to. I think it's, it's honest. It's true. But the fact that you're willing to do inquiries, and I mean, places, you know, what, I don't know, 1,500 miles away and, and to help facilitate him getting there and being set up, I think that's a pretty awesome gift to give somebody. I, I'm sure that uh, probably 100% of homeless people out there would be just overwhelmingly appreciative of someone who would offer them that gift. Oh, I bet they would. That's yeah. True. So. Thank you, Michael. So I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different I, I think it's a, What I want to say is, I don't want to do this anymore, Michael. But I don't yep. have to say that, and I can say I'm not willing. That seems sort of colder, and but equally truthful. It doesn't seem as heated. And, <laughs> yeah, and you can say what you're willing to do. What I'm willing to do is I'm willing to support you getting somewhere where there's the kind of support for your mental, emotional, and physical disability that you need. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. doubt that you are capable of filling those needs for him. Well, we're... we're In any reasonable way. Yeah. We're a lot older, but we're, knock on wood, capable at this time, but you never know. So anyway, thank you so much for talking about that again. Holding the space (sighs) to your heart. I appreciate your generosity and your willingness to do your work. (laughs) Yeah, well, good. I'm glad you do. (laughs) Thank you. All right, young lady. Well, any other thoughts for you? No, I'll I'll get off and I'll listen. We've got a furnace man. I'm up at my right now. Okay, I will. Thank you. Sweet. Have a blessed one. All right. Tell Michael we said hello and send her love. Bye-bye. I will. Thanks, Michael. All right, Miss Jeannie. It looks like we've got about 12 minutes or so left. Plenty of time, so somebody press 1. If you're on another station where we can't see you on the switchboard, please dial in 563-999-3581 and press 1. And if you press 1, we'll be having a conversation. Can you introduce you by your area code? Let's talk about it. How can we support you? What's on your mind? What's burdening your heart? You know, one of the things about sharing a load is it's divided in half. And we're here to help carry it. And a lot of times, you know, the the burden that seems unresolvable is nothing more than a thought disorder that, if opened up, can be changed in an instant. And 
removal of those thought disorders is literally the removal of chemistry that creates disease and disability in tissue. So how can we support you? What's on your mind? What's going on in your world? And we're getting ready this afternoon to go and dig in about, I don't know, if we're going to do all the bulbs of another 100 native species bulbs for our the new part of our native species garden. So if anybody wants to come help, come on. And we have Other a book that, club coming up Thursday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're actually going to do a live worksheet, I think. I believe that's where we're going to go on Thursday afternoon, 3.30 Eastern Time. Uh, I'm sure Jeannie's probably putting the link in the notes. It's a Zoom call. So you can access the Zoom call on your computer or on your phone. All you need is that link. And at 3.30 Eastern Time, we'll be doing it here. It'll actually be 8.30 in London, England, where the support group or the uh, book club is. We appreciate Miss Yinka, who uh, uh, runs that book club in London, and decided that uh, she wanted to – actually, it's kind of fun, because uh, she contacts me and she said, I don't have any idea where I got this book, but I just want to let you know we're going to do a book study on it. So we got talking, and I said, well, I'll come and help with the book study. And so we've been doing that now for, you know, I'm not even sure now, but well over a year. Um, but <laughs> oftentimes when she – introduces us she's like and i have no idea where i got this book it came in the mail and she doesn't know how she doesn't remember ordering it it just showed up so anyway uh 3 thursday afternoon join us on zoom i believe we're going to do a live worksheet we've been we went through the whole book over a period of a year and we did a couple of chapters a couple three chapters at a time and then we decided to go back with a comb that's a little finer tooth. And so we've been doing one chapter uh, the second and fourth Thursday afternoon of each month. And Yinka and is in the chat room, and she said, yes, it was going to be a worksheet Thursday. Do we have somebody to do the worksheet, Yinka? Has somebody said, I would like to be the one? Or should we put it out that if somebody wants to be the person to do the worksheet, then they could be joined us. I don't know whether you've got somebody or, you know, maybe, Yank, it's time for us to walk you through a worksheet. That might be an interesting. Yes, you've probably got more uh, experience and more in the way of brain cells than anybody in the book club with it. So that might be a fun project, too, if there's a particular issue that you'd like to work on. Maybe we could uh, could support you in a worksheet. She just wrote in the chat room, appreciate, appreciate you both. A lot has opened up since our last Mind Shifter, which is still unraveling. She says, Gabriella um, has volunteered, but we may need someone else as she is not sure she's going to be able to make it. Ah, okay. Well, if there's somebody out there that would like to do a live worksheet on Zoom, then let us know. Drop Jeannie a note, J-E-A-N-I-E at W-H-Y, again, dot org. And if Gabriella drops out, then maybe you'll be the person we'll do the worksheet with. That'd be cool. And 
Dorsey first, for most people at first, is very mysterious, but it's so simple. Ultimately, it's so simple. Now, a lot of people look at it, and in their minds, it's very complicated, but it's their minds that are complicated, not the worksheet. The principle is really very simple. The steps are simple. But some of the things that come up are not so simple. So engaging in, being part of someone else doing worksheet can be a great place to you know, to step back, that, that thing we've talked about of where, where we're inviting you to become the thinker apart from the thought and the feeler apart from the feelings, the actor apart from the actions, if you step back and observe your mind in operation, the complexity comes from the mind. And so being part of someone else doing worse, you can be powerful to just watch how the process unfolds and understand it at another level. It's pretty simple and straightforward. Yinka said that if Gabrielle is not there, that if no one else comes forward, um, that she will offer to do the worksheet. Cool. I think that'd be great, Yinka. I think that I think if Gabrielle is not there, we should we should stick with you and uh, and we'll walk you through one. I think that would be fun and and uh, powerful for everybody. And the forgiveness process, you know, I love what the Course in Miracles says about it. It's it's so simple. It cannot fail but be completely understood. Rejected, yes, but not ambiguous. It's, it's so straightforward. Perception is a construct of the mind. If there's pain in your perception, then your mind is using corrupt data to build that construct in your mind. Perception is driven by goals. You'll notice that unless you're just a generally miserable person, you're pretty happy with just about everybody in your world, right? Until they fail to fulfill a goal you have for them. And when they fail to forgive that goal you have for them, what happens? The goal links into some form of hostility or fear, and all of a sudden, you've got an opportunity to remove, to address directly your hostility or fear and remove it. And it's the goal that's the key way into forgiveness. It's the goal that's the core of the forgiveness process. Now, I can remember back in the early days of being told that, and I would share it in my workshops, you know, once in a while. It was just kind of an offhanded thing. And, and over a period of time, I'd have people come back to me and say, you know, I've, I've been doing that canceling of the goal thing, and that's really life-changing. That's really powerful. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And as I started to look deeper at it and understand it, it's like, oh, now I see why you would do such a silly thing as cancel a perfectly good goal. Because if your perception is pained and you can collapse that perception, you can access the underlying root of the pain directly in the presence of love. And when you do that, the pain begins its dissolution. It's the key to freedom. Actually, I shouldn't say freedom. I should say liberty. There is no freedom. Everybody wants freedom, but you'll notice the, that that bell, you know, it's not the freedom bell. It's the liberty bell. Why? Because there is no freedom. Every action creates an equal and opposite reaction. In other words, there's going to be something that results from every action that you take. People want freedom. They want to be free from the reaction. Well, it doesn't happen. 
But there's liberty. You can do whatever you choose to do. Are you willing to live with the results of or the consequences of what it is that you're doing? And are you aware that there's an unconscious part of your mind that is going to be involved in creating some of those results that you say you don't like and that you're the one who's creating them and that's why you're living in the why is this happening to me again experience? And when you unravel that experience within your own mind, then you can stop creating out of it and the whole game changes. So we're here to support people changing their game and entering into the creative process as conscious human beings. And human beings are made of the stuff called love. Creating your life consciously. There's actually a whole workshop we do called On Creating Consciously. That's about getting out of the unconscious type of creative process. That was called in the ancient teachings, living in the desert, and moving into a conscious creative process, which in the ancient teachings was called living in the promised land. The promised land's not about, you know, some place all filled with milk and honey. It's just that we could be creating our lives without having to face the unconscious consequences of our creative process. And what forgiveness does is it gives us access to our own unconscious dynamics. At which point, if you decide you'd like to change it, you can change it. If it's unconscious, then it's not changeable because there's no access to it. You've got to access it first. The only way, you know, through it is through it. And so we're here to take that understanding out on a global scale and make it available to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. We're glad you're part of the process. Share it. Pass it on. appreciate you joining us and create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. And blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pache, as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.